This uh, passage, Acts chapter 3 and 4, is so rich. And I thought I could get through it all, but I'm just going to probably get through the very first part today. That's all that the first service got, so that's all you're going to (laughs) get. But what I want you to see, and there's so much in chapter 3 and 4, and this does give us the opportunity to read it again and read it again this week. There's so much that is instructive, but I want us to see in what I think really pulls chapter 3, verse 1, all the way through chapter 4, verse 31, is the way the Jesus people use Jesus' name. I want us to see how they use Jesus' name. Because it tells a lot about where Jesus is in their lives. It tells a lot about the power and the priority and the principle of Jesus' name. In your worksheet, which is in your bulletin, which, by the way, is folded and seems backwards. But the reason for that is, is that when you open it, there's room for extra note-taking. But the answer to the three questions is basically Jesus' name. Jesus' name. For example, the first question is, how is it Jesus' people work miracles? Jesus' name. And that emphasizes his power. And we'll see that in each point. I would like to tell you the answer to the second question and the third, but you're going to come back next Sunday for that. So, with that in mind, thinking about the power, the priority, and the principle that's found in Jesus' name. In, we could use other words for power, priority, and principle. We could talk about the status. There's status in Jesus' name. There's, we could talk not so much about the priority. We could talk about the influence in Jesus' name. We could talk not so much about the principle, but the very character in Jesus' name. But you get the idea. There's something about Jesus' name that changes these Jesus people, and it characterizes, I mean, it just typifies the way they look at life, the way they handle life, the way they respond to it. And it's pretty powerful stuff. I think if we just read a few verses from chapter 3, and then I want to take us to a little blurb in chapter 4, You'll see just from these passages how important Jesus is, but how they use Jesus' name. And the issue of Jesus' name is very prominent there, but it's all through. And, and I wish we could read all of 3 and 4 this morning, but let's, uh, let's begin at chapter 3, verse 1, as we consider the Jesus people becoming the church. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now, a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, or Nicanor Gate, where he was put every day to beg. And just so you know, every day, At 9 and 3, there was prayer and sacrifice offered. 
There was sacrifice every day in the temple. There was prayer every day. And this is the 3 o'clock prayer and sacrifice worship time in the temple. And Peter and John, they are Jews. They are godly Jews. But now they're Messianic Jews. Because Jesus is the Messiah. But they don't stop going to church. You see? And they're on their way into the temple. And this man who was born with defect, he was natal, he was natally crippled. And every day, he, would, he, he couldn't even hobble. He had to be carried. And he himself, because of his, his malady, because of this, if you will, imperfection, he could not enter into the temple courts. In chapter 4, you'll learn that he has been this way 40 years. In all of that time, He's never gone into the temple. He's never entered in to the worship of God with His people. And here He is at the gate like every other day. And Peter and John are among the throng of people. This is probably the very gate in which Jesus in the triumphal entry entered. We stood beneath this gate. Now it's all blocked in. But it was the main gate from the Kidron Valley and from the east, the Mount of Olives. And it was that way and up and into this area facing the temple. And Peter and John are among the people doing what they do every day, going into the temple to worship when he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. I don't think he thought there was anything special about them. A man like that begged every day, have pity on me. Can you give me something? Help me. And he did that with Peter and John. And they looked straight at him. Think about the next time you come across someone who's begging and where your gaze goes. Peter and John looked straight at him. And then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold, I do not have. But what I have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Literally, get up and walk around. Rise up and walk around. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking. 
and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade, just inside the temple entrance. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified His servant Jesus. You handed Him over to be killed. You disowned Him before Pilate though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We're witnesses to this. And by faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name. And the faith that comes through him that He has given this complete healing to Him, as you can all see. Now, brothers, I know you acted in ignorance. And He continues. And He continues. And then it's interrupted. And they're arrested. The temple guard who work for the temple authorities, the priests in this case, And priests were Sadducees, the aristocracy, the elders that are mentioned in chapter 4 are Sadducees by and large because they're the aristocracy, the upper class of the Jews. And they run the temple. In fact, Ananias is mentioned, but he's no longer high priest. He's called high priest. You know why? Because he's still got a grip on the temple. His own family members are priests. Son-in-law the high priest. But he's the real power. Nothing's changed. They've got it by the throat. And they disavow the resurrection. So they stop Peter and John in mid-sentence. He doesn't even get to give his invitation. And since it's Three, and now later, it's almost sunset, the end of the day. And so they put them in custody. They, re- they, they detain them. And then there's a hearing. And at that hearing, this is what is asked. Verse 7 of chapter 4. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter 
filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness, literally a good deed, now what are they reflecting on? The healing of the lame man. And what does he call it? He calls it a good deed. An act of kindness. An act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed. Then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He, the stone the builders rejected, which is from Psalm 118, a psalm of ascent. In other words, a psalm that was written and read when people went up to the temple. It's the temple that's in view when it talks about the stone that was rejected. And they're now standing in the temple, in front of the rulers of the temple, giving an account to them by what power or by what name they have done this act of kindness. And he's in effect saying, in building the temple, they built it and it was all out of whack. You know why it was out of whack? Because the stone that they rejected was the one that was to be the cornerstone by which the whole temple was built and plumbed. And he says, that stone, the stone that you overlooked, the stone that you said no to, is the very stone that God has used to build what He's building right now. And what you are witnessing is this new great work of God. A work that's greater than the temple that you stand for and in whose name you oppose us. For he goes on to say, salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. What's in a name? The very person that that name is a cipher or a symbol for. Think about this. We're all familiar with Romeo and Juliet. Juliet She asks, and I think rhetorically, what's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Of course, she loves Romeo Montague. And she's Ju she is Juliet Capulet. They are caught in a doomed love. Shakespeare calls it star-crossed because they represent families that hate each other. And to Juliet, Montague is a repugnant name. 
It is horrifically repugnant. And it just doesn't make sense for the man she loves to bear the name Montague. They don't go together. And that's what she's talking about. She's saying his name has nothing to do with who he really is. In fact, Romeo, out of love for Juliet, rejected his family, his family name, and vowed, in the words of Shakespeare, to, quote, deny father, end quote. And in fact, to, quote, be new baptized, end quote, as Juliet's lover. What's in a name but a history, a story, good or bad, signed by a name. And the name becomes a brand, a product, defined by the person's claims, credibility, conduct, and character. If it's true that a picture is worth a thousand words, think of a bulging album opened by the power of a name. When Shelley and I were expecting our first child, we were picking baby names. And I had a name for a boy that I just thought was the very best name of all names. And I was so hopeful that Shelley would agree with me. And when I, when I unveiled <laughs> this wonderful name for our firstborn boy, her face scrunched up. <laughs> and she rejected the name out of hand. And I, I, I thought, summarily, what, what is going on? This is a great name. It's melodic. It has strength. She goes, I had a classmate who had that name. He's ruined it for me. <laughs> Names are powerful. Jewish teacher Jesus, son of Sarah, who wrote his writings of wisdom, Jewish wisdom, 175 years before Jesus was born, wrote and warns us, have regard for your name, since it will remain for you longer than a thousand great stores of gold. The days of a good life are numbered. But a good name endures forever. Do you think people can turn a good name into a bad name? I was deeply, deeply shocked and saddened when I got the news yesterday afternoon. I mean, it was I just initially disbelief that Whitney Houston had died at 48. Can you turn a good name into a bad name? Can a name have a certain sweetness and then bitterness? Interestingly, Peter, who's so prominent in chapter 3 and 4, wrote his first letter, 1 Peter, and he talks about the power of a name. 
He talks about the power of the name of Jesus in chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Let me read a little of this. He says, if you are insulted, in other words, if someone finds fault in you and expresses it in a fault-finding, insulting way when it's not true and it's because of Jesus, he says, if you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the Spirit of God the Spirit of glory rests on you. Then he goes on to say this. He says, if you suffer it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler which refers to a mischief maker. However, he says, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name, the name of Jesus Christ. And then he nails it in the next two verses, and I'm just going to summarize it because I want you to really get what he says. He says, if Jesus doesn't make a difference in us, the very family of God, What is the hope of those who don't know Jesus? What is the hope of those who would see Jesus in you and in me and gain hope in a hopeless world if they can't see in us the difference that God makes? If they can't see in us the power of God, the priority the character and principle. If they can't see that in us, what is their hope? That's powerful stuff. I mean, that really rocked my world this week, thinking about this all week. And now we all have another week to think about it some more. To use Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 16, those branded with his identity bear a name characterized as humble in spirit. They grieve with those who grieve. They're gentle. They hunger and thirst after righteousness. They're pure in heart. They're peacemakers. They accept persecution and ridicule for righteousness' sake. We who bear the brand of Jesus are to be salt and light in a dark world. Will we glorify, that is, elevate the reputation of the name we bear? These Jesus people elevate the name they bear. That's why I call them Jesus people. And the main point of three and four is that in Jesus' name, Jesus' people present Jesus to people. They don't present themselves. They present Jesus. If you ask how it is that Jesus' people work miracles, it's the power in Jesus, not in themselves. There's no power in my name kind of rocked me a little bit when in Michael's prayer he said my whole name. I mean, that really kind of... 
There's no power in my name. And I know that. I especially know it when I'm here. And that's why I always want to, to ground what we're looking at and what, I'm, what I get excited about. I've been excited about all week. And what I get moved about, I've been moved all week because it comes out of God's Word. Here's the authority. Here's the power. Jesus. And that's the way those people felt. It's in Jesus' name. John the Baptist, who Jesus said, if you can understand it or if you accept it, he's Elijah. Everybody accepted Elijah to foretell to be the forerunner of the Messiah. And what did John say? Well, in John chapter 3, verse 30, those memorable words, He, that is Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. That's true of every Jesus person. We need to be swallowed up in Jesus. Jesus people don't want people to meet them. They want them to meet Jesus. It's not their power. It's His power. And as we've seen already in the first two chapters of Acts, when Jesus is made preeminent, even as literally and historically he was made preeminent when he was raised from the dead, thought to be a well, that's part of the message, rejected, discarded, dismissed, but not in the eyes of God. God raised him up. God raised him from the dead and exalted him to the right hand of the Father and fulfilled the promise to us all in outpouring his power in the Holy Spirit. And the point has been when we make him preeminent, God's going to show up. His power will be manifest. We live in a world that doesn't expect that doesn't even accept the existence of God. Don't get sucked into that. There are two miracles here, and maybe a third if I can get this point finished. Two miracles. The miracle, that I call it a miracle. What did Peter call it? As we saw, he calls it a good deed. An act of kindness. And this man who was lame from birth walked, leaped, and praised the Lord, entered the temple precincts for the first time. And the people around who had seen him there all the time, I mean, it took a moment to make the association, you know? I mean, I remember once going to the athletic club and standing right next to a friend in the shower, and I didn't even recognize him, you know? I was used to seeing him in a business suit, not his birthday suit. Only three people understood what happened. Think about it. Peter, John, and the lame man. 
Nobody else understood. That's why they're amazed. They're shocked. And Peter says, why stare as if our power or godliness had anything to do with this? I think you should underscore neatly, of course, it's the word, but underscore godliness, or you could understand it as piety. Underscore that because so often we think that God's power is only going to show up if we're worthy. And Peter dispels that. God wants to use you when you want to be used by Him. When you're open to Him using you. Humanly, I think there's an element in that because we want to get hold of this power. We want, we want to see God in action in ways like this to kind of hype our own faith. We need it more than the people for whom God wants to perform miracles to bring them the faith, and we're the family of faith. We're the people of faith. We're going to see that attitude in, in triplet in chapter 8 with Simon Magus. He is, he's quite a little miracle worker of his own, and he sees what God is doing in the Jesus people, and he says, I want that. There's the real power. And Peter says to Simon, he says, Simon, it's not going to happen because your heart is not right before God. That's in 821. What happens here? You really have to notice this because you aren't going to see it at first, first pass. What is... Peter say to this man? Does he say, by the power vested in me? Does he say, I command you in the name of Jesus? No, he does not. He says to this man, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk around. He is inviting this man to put his faith in Jesus. But I left something out on purpose. He actually says, in the name of Jesus, the Messiah. This man must believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And if he believes that, he's going to get up and walk around. It's his faith that's being called into action. Peter has faith too. He lends his hand to him and starts to raise him up. And as that man starts to rise, instantly we're told, in that moment, in his ankles and feet, the source, the location of his lameness, he is made strong. He is strengthened. 
and probably grew in strength as he continued to walk in faith. And he goes right into the temple, which I think is a follow-up of the real faith experience of this man. He's now going into the temple for the first time. He doesn't run home and say, hey, thanks a lot. Now I can get a job and really make a living and live the life I've always wanted to live. And that's, that's not so far from our own experience, is it? It's not even far from my past experience where I want God to do things for me so I can get on with my life. This man met Jesus. And when all the people saw Him walking and praising God, they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. And that brings the second miracle. Because Peter begins to explain, it's not us. It's not by our name. It's not by our power. It's not by our piety or godliness. And he launches into telling them about Jesus. And I just want to draw your attention. You see, there's, it's called the message in chapter 4, verse 4. But the word translated message in the New International Version in chapter 4, verse 4, is the word, word. And what is the word? And if you look down, just for a moment, a little further in verse 29, when they pray, when they pray, They pray that they will have boldness to speak the Word. What is the Word? In a word, Jesus. Jesus. The power of this good deed is in Jesus' name. The power of this powerful Word is Jesus' name. And I'm saying that's a big miracle because in verse 4, even though Peter and John are interrupted and hauled away, over 2,000 are added to the church because they believe in what they've heard about Jesus, that He is the Messiah. Their numbers swell. What was 3,000 with men, women, children, over 3,000. Now it says 2,000 men not counting women and children, are added. That's a miracle too. Don't miss that. You see, God is a miracle-working God. And whether we stand back and go, wow, that was a miracle, and we work to define what it was. But I'll tell you, people who are Jesus people, who expect great things from God, who really believe, that He has sent His Son, and His Son has been raised. He is the Messiah. And a whole new covenant and work is in progress, and we're part of it. Even today, even now, even you, when you believe that, you start to see miracles. You see God at work. And you feel foolish not to call a lot of things miraculous. But let me ask you, and This is how, I want to ask you this. This is, how does it all begin? This is so important. How does this all begin? I mean, chapter 3 and 4 would not be written without this beginning. How does it all begin? How do these miracles start? Where does it start? 
It starts so routinely, so regularly. Literally hundreds walk right by it. It starts with a lame man and the belief that God can make a difference. Otherwise, Peter and John would have walked right by. Let me ask you another important question. I think this is really significant. In this beginning, in this account, I think, where are today's strategies, gimmicks, church growth seminars to be found? Does God need church growth marketing campaigns and strategic demographic studies to change a life? I've been in the pastorate over 30 years. Right now, I wish I could haul in a wheelbarrow of stuff that I've received in the mail. That wouldn't even account for the internet. Over these years, telling me to really make a difference. You gotta do it this way, you gotta do it that way, you gotta have this gimmick, you gotta have that strategy, you gotta buy these tapes, these books. Where do these Jesus people start doing it? With Jesus. How did Jesus begin? How did Jesus begin? Did he come of age at 12, 13, 14, 15, Start earning money and say, i got to blow this place. Judea is not the place for me. I'm going to save my money and sail to Rome. I'm going to target the Caesars of this world, the power brokers, people with juice. I'm going to win them to my cause because they're the ones who can leverage the rest of the world. He didn't do that. He didn't look beyond the poor. He didn't look past the lame. He didn't ignore the outcasts. We're sitting here because of that. And yet we look beyond it when it comes to trying to change the world and be Jesus people and expect him to use us right where we're at. We don't even think about it. We think other people are better suited. We think that there are others that need to be doing this in some other place than where I'm at, in my home, in my work, in my neighborhood, in my activities, right where I'm at, in the routines of my life. And why don't we feel powerful or ready or prepared or bold? Because we're trying to do it in our own name. I got nothing to sell this world in my name. When we look at other people as being more appropriate, more prepared, more powerful, more ready, the ones God really wants to use, we're looking at their names, not Jesus' name. There's no other name, verse 12 of chapter 4, given among men under heaven in whom there is life-changing, course-altering, heart-turning salvation. We don't have to go to Washington We don't need another party. We don't need a new candidate. 
We don't need to legislate new laws. Tell me one person who's read a law, gotten on a law, and read, wrote it into newness of life. Have you not read Paul? Have you not heard about grace? The law will not do the job. It will not change a person's life. And yet we are all about it, aren't we? Come on, level with me in your hearts. We want to do something about this life because we haven't really laid down our lives for Jesus Christ. I'll tell you, if you want to become a political power, it won't be because you want to become a political power. It'll become you because of Jesus Christ, or it won't become you at all. It's hot in here, isn't it? I get worked up, and I'll tell you why. Because I'm preaching to myself. I'm yelling at John Venema, calling him back to what caused him to give Jesus Christ first place in his life so many years ago. And I'm still here, and I'm still at it, but sometimes just like you, I know, don't think I don't. You're just like me. We forget where the real power lies. So today, this week, you'll be thinking about the name that you bear, that determines your identity. Let's do some great things in His name. Will you stand and we'll pray? If God has spoken to your heart this morning, maybe you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you want to talk or you would like to pray and ask Him to become your Savior, your Lord. Maybe you're the lame man that God is speaking to this morning. Or maybe God has spoken to you because as we're all prone to do in our humanness, we look past the lame men of this world and you want to pray and say, Lord, no more. Use me. Whatever the prayer on your heart, we invite you to come. I'm going to be up here with pastoral staff and elders and their, their wives. and You can pray right where you're at. But if you'd like to pray with us, we'd like to pray with you too. Let me pray for us and let's go with God. Heavenly Father, thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. There is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. Thank you for your grace and your goodness and your love. It's revolutionary. May it continue to capture our hearts, reform our thinking, and refresh us in the real things of life and destiny and eternity. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. This has been a production of Grace Community Church of Visalia. For more information, go to our website at www.
www.gccvisalia.org. Or for more sermons, go to gccvisalia.org slash podcast.